I'm Asan, and welcome to a very special 9320 podcast. Um, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, you'll know that as well as doing the podcasting, my daily job is as a writer for film and television, or at least trying to write for film, film and television. Um, I was approached earlier this year to get involved in a documentary which is being made in the States called Soccer in the City, which will focus, amongst other things, on the lack of any real infrastructure for kids to play football in U.S. inner cities. Joining me today to talk about the documentary and a little bit about himself is the producer and director of that film, Mr. Michael Holstein from The Content Farm. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning, sir. It is a pleasure to uh, to be on with you. I've been a... A fan of the pod for quite some time, and as you uh, indicated, I approached you about, gosh, I don't know, maybe close to close to a year ago now. I think I stalked you on LinkedIn and saw that you were a writer as well as the host of my favorite podcast, and felt that we should have a conversation about this. So I'm glad we've become friends and started working together, and I'm excited to go down this on this journey with you. Absolutely, I guess that before we get into the film and all of that stuff. I should make it clear, Michael's a City fan, which is why he listens to the podcast and why he reached out. As you can probably tell by his accent, he's not a mank. So, Michael, why don't you tell us how you ended up becoming a City fan? Uh, I came to City about a dozen or so years ago. Uh, I've played soccer my entire life. And uh, as you know, and as we'll cover, uh, soccer in America is not much to speak of. And a dozen or so years ago was even less. Um, so I was playing on a club team at the time and a friend of mine, uh, was English and said, listen, you gotta, you have to become a fan of the premier league. It's the only legitimate league. It's where all the action is. So just pick a team, you know, find a team, learn about the team and make that your team. And seemed like a good enough plan to me uh at the time so i eliminated at the time the big clubs i know i didn't want to be a front runner uh you know it'd be like somebody coming over to america and just jumping onto the dallas cowboys or the new england patriots or something like that and i knew i didn't want that so at the time that meant that arsenal and united were gone uh which turned out to be quite wise uh <laughs> I was and still am a tremendous Oasis fan. They're probably my favorite band ever. So I knew the boys were City supporters. I picked Man City and I told my friend, he said, oh yeah, Man United, that's a great choice. I said, no, Man City. Man City, they go up and down and they're never, you know, they're like the ugly sister. But I stuck with it and uh, there were some dicey years, obviously, but the past... uh, Gosh, I don't know, past what, six, eight years have been delightful. And in fact, uh, of all my teams that I root for, I'm a New Orleans Saints fan in the NFL. And I went to the University of Miami. So for college football, that's who I support. But uh, in the past 10 years, the only team that's really brought me joy has been City. And they've they've brought quite a bit of it. So no regrets, even even in the early years. But Excellent. I am a massive City supporter. And uh We'll be coming over there for my first time this spring. So very excited about that. Excellent. Um, now, can I just say, even though you've not, you sent me some notes, you didn't put it in the notes, but one of the first things that you told me is that you wrote on The Wire or you were part of the writer's room for The Wire. Uh, yeah, that was a very lucky break. I think uh, it was really my first legitimate job out of college and it's been 
directly downhill since then. Uh, <laughs> so I'm really, I'm really doing well. You know, 20 years after graduating college, when I'm still trying to get back to the, to the glory of my first gig. But uh, I took a screenwriting class my last year in school, and my professor was an HBO staff writer. Uh, he really liked the way I wrote dialogue, um, and when I finished school, offered me sort of. I don't know, sort of a glorified internship, um, helping punch up some dialogue in various programs. Um, one of them was a new show, uh, called the wire. And, uh, I'm from the DC area. Obviously the wire was filmed in Baltimore, but I think I had a, a pretty good ear and ability to write dialogue, uh, for the characters in that show. And I ended up lasting two seasons. Um, Writing on writing for the Wire, wrote for Arliss and a couple other programs as well. But uh, yeah, the Wire is the one that somehow always seems to make it onto my resume, no matter what. I could be like <laughs> applying for a bartending job and be like, "Hey, I wrote for the Wire." Well, I so, think that was uh, more or less our conversation. Within five or ten minutes, you told me that, and immediately I was like, "Okay, fine, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm in." Yeah, I'm, so- I'm not shy about dropping that one. So it's. <laughs> Uh, I will say, though, in in fairness, that I am almost certain that not a single word I wrote ever made it uh, onto film, which is fine because it was still a wonderful experience. So uh, I certainly have nothing to do with the success of the show, but I guess my performance wasn't so bad that I didn't hurt it either. So well, exactly, you were there uh, for two was, seasons, so that that's that's. Uh Almost Mourinho levels of time in a, in yeah, a gig, to be honest. That's right. and, I, and I wasn't sacked and I didn't, you know, sort of park the bus and just sit, sit back and play negatively. So, yeah, it was it was a great experience. And even though I uh, I don't write scripted programs anymore, I leave that to people with talent levels like yours. Um, I work mostly in unscripted television documentaries uh, just you know, to be surrounded by that level of talent, I think has sort of shaped everything I've done since then. So yeah, terrific experience. Absolutely. Now you, uh, you run the content farm. Is that right? Is that a fast? So I've, uh, I've had a, yeah, I had a production company for about, uh, 10 or so years called the content farm that, um, is based out of Washington DC and office, uh, with an office in New Orleans as well. And, about a year or so ago, uh, my company was sort of not acquired by, but became a partner with a big company in Los Angeles called Critical Content that Sorry, produces um, several hundred hours of content per year across all cable platforms. So the content farm still exists, but it's been a little bit subsumed by Critical Content. And then about uh, eight months ago, I joined an organization in Washington, D.C. called D.C. Scores, which is the official community partner of D.C. United, the MLS franchise here in Washington. Uh, and I work there now and still have the content farm uh, on the side. And uh, through the uh, through the wisdom of D.C. Scores, they've enabled us to make this film uh, that will talk a little bit about today Mm. well let's talk tell me a little bit more about what scores do and then we can kind of feed that into what we want to do with the film yeah sure um so dc scores like i said is the the official community partner of dc united um it's also the biggest after school program in washington dc and it provides uh, a mix of soccer spoken word poetry and service learning teams for kids uh, in kindergarten through eighth grade, low-income kids 
in kindergarten through eighth grade in the District of Columbia. Uh, it's also the hub of a network of chapters, uh, about a dozen or so across America and in Canada, um, that provide similar service. Um, the program is free to children. Uh, kids who join a team have to participate in all three aspects. So, uh, you know, kids who want to play soccer are also sort of pushed out of their comfort zone to write and perform spoken word poetry and then also uh, complete service learning, community service projects um, with their teams as well. And um, it was a pretty big career shift for me, um, you know, leaving, at least in part, um, sort of the cutthroat television world um, to go to a service organization. But it was something I really wanted to do. It was important to me to do something that felt meaningful and just I, I love the organization and everything they stood for and the results and the passion everybody there had for the mission and, and the success stories they've had with, you know, taking kids, like I said, who've maybe never been on a team and giving them a team that um, supports them so holistically, mind, body, and spirit with, with soccer and spoken word poetry and service. Soccer is definitely at the core of it. And I'll be, and, to be honest, that's that's what drew me in was, you know, it's the game I've loved my entire life and the chance to work in it um, and help shape their communications. It'll be uh, it'll be D.C.'s 25th anniversary this coming year. And uh, they really wanted to sort of take their communications and their programming and their their messaging to the next level um, and uh, took a chance on a TV producer to come in and, and help them do that. Uh, so it's an exciting opportunity to help just a wonderful organization that serves so many people. And um, it's it's been uh, really about the most enjoyable step in my career so far. How does the film feed into what you do at Scores? Because that's kind of, there is a, a, a tie-in and it kind of feeds into why you approach me as well. But just to begin with, what's the connection? Why this film? What's moved you to want to make this film? Yeah, so when I was um, interviewing and, and you know thinking about joining the organization, um, I spoke with the leadership there, the executive director, and said, you know, what what do you want to do? What would be sort of your tentpole thing that you would do for the 25th anniversary? And I thought about it, and I said, I'd like to make a movie about soccer in inner city America. Um, as you know, and as everybody knows, the men's national team has had pretty close to no success on the national stage. Um, a lot of disappointments and, and probably none greater than this past World Cup when we didn't even qualify. Uh, and it's always seemed odd to me that soccer has been, uh, for the most part, confined to the suburbs and to these pay-to-play leagues um, that exist in suburban America where, it, it again, it, it just seems like it'd be so easy to fit it into urban America, you know, you need, you need a rectangle and, and a ball and a couple cones that can serve as a goal and you can set up a pitch anywhere. And that's never really caught on well in America. And I've always been very curious about why um, that is. And at the same time, how, if that wasn't the case, if soccer was more accessible, more cool in the cities and more just kind of steeped in urban life, um, then wouldn't that deepen the talent pool? that the men's national team draws from and improve our success on the pitch. Um, so I, you know, I presented that idea. I pitched that idea, if you will, to scores and said, listen, I don't want to come here and make 
sort of a typical nonprofit puff piece movie. Um, you know, oh, aren't we great? We're this wonderful organization. Here's some cool stories, you know, and all that's true. And we could probably make a really nice film like that, but I wanted to do a real movie and um, organically weave uh, DC scores and, and other chapters of scores into that film as a success story. And as an example of an organization that is taking steps to make soccer accessible uh, to cities. Um, so they uh, hopefully to their wisdom, not to their folly bought into it and uh, uh, kind of greenlit me up to do it. And uh, so we're going to make a movie and uh, you know, as you and I, have talked about a lot over the past few weeks and months, the more we sort of dig into this story, the more there is. Um, and it's certainly, we're not going to ever suffer from a lack of content, right? I mean, if anything, (laughs) it's how are we going to confine ourselves to a 90 minute film? But, um, I think you've experienced this too. And maybe you can talk about it in terms of conversations you've had, in Europe, but in America, I've started going to some you know, soccer for all conferences and just starting to talk to people at various levels of soccer from our partners at DC United to sponsors to just fans of the game. And every, I'm mean, literally everybody I talk to about this says, wow, yeah, that is true. I wonder why that is. I can't wait to see what you guys find out. And, and, uh, you know, I think we're starting to learn, right. As you, and as we write the treatments, but, um, I think we still have a lot to learn about why it is and how it can be fixed and what it will mean once it is fixed. Well, I don't know if we can, you know, I I think you'd agree. I don't think that we're going to find the answers to, to what will fix all the ills of, of football in, in the States. But I think acknowledging that certainly from my point of view, when you approach me about it and when I began to read into it, I think the thing that really blows me away is the lack of access that, inner city kids have to playing the sport and also the entire pay to play system. I think it's important for our European listeners that you explain a little bit what we mean when we say that from a participation point of view, excuse me, um, you have to pay to play. What does that mean? Yeah. I mean, so for the most part, schools in cities don't offer soccer. They don't have the field, you know, they don't have the space. They don't have people who are qualified to coach it. Um, so some schools do, of course. I mean, it's not universal. And there are certain hotbeds of, of urban soccer in America, which we can talk about. But Atlanta's really um, at the forefront of that. And New York's always had a pretty cool urban soccer scene and um, and you know, thanks to organizations like Scores, where 3,000 kids play, Washington, D.C. does too. But for the most part, soccer in America is literally what it sounds like. It's pay to play. So, you know, you can go to a school and join your basketball team or football team or things like that just as part of your school. But if you want to play soccer, the leagues are almost entirely not just pay to play, which, you know, you, you have to pay for a membership to join a team, you have to pay for your own kit, your own equipment, things like that. But they're also in the suburbs, so it's not just pay to play, but it's it's a logistics issue. You know, you take a kid who lives in inner city Washington, and they have to get out to Fairfax, Virginia, which is you know an hour away, to find a place to play soccer. And it's it's really it's just amazing. I mean, if you look at urban centers around the world, and you know, you look at I don't know, like Gabriel Jesus, you know, playing in the favelas of Brazil. 
or you know, as you see in Paris, uh, you know, kids playing in Marseille and, and in in the poorer parts of Paris itself, um, that just doesn't exist in any sort of uh, any sort of large numbers in mm. the states. Um, and the older you get, you know, even if it does exist, maybe in grade school, you can go out and, and kick a ball around in the field. But once you get into the organized leagues and, and sort of the system where you're going to have support, you're going to have coaching that would improve your game uh, and make soccer not necessarily a viable career, but even a viable thing that could get you into college or, you know, even you know, something you could play in your high school team. It's almost all pay to play and it's a pervasive system. Uh that, and it's not it's not just know, like it's not a small amount that we're talking about because I think we should also make the distinction it's not like it's you know pay to play means you turn up and you pay five bucks and you play like that we're talking about I've read anywhere between you know five and fifteen thousand dollars per season basically yeah I mean for kids who at the high school level or even the, maybe even the middle school level who want to have access to the better programs uh, yeah those numbers are right um and even at the sort of lower levels, just the rec leagues are several hundred dollars uh, plus kits and equipment and transportation. So if you factor that in, you know, you take a kid from the inner city uh, who, whose family likely doesn't have, you know, even a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars per season. You know, this isn't a year. This is you're paying that twice a year or, or three times a year. Um, and it's, you know, we're leaving, I think, just an incredible talent base sort of stuck in the locker room uh and at the same time you're taking kids who who want this opportunity who are maybe interested in the game who see you know a Kylian Mbappe or you know whoever or Neymar or something like that who want this path out or this path to a sport that they like especially uh here as as football American football becomes a little more uh, controversial, you know, mm. with with the injuries and the and the the just probably just the tip of the iceberg with what's going on with the CTE. Um, you know, parents who are former football players aren't letting their kids play. So soccer seems to be the panacea, but the pay to play system is is so pervasive and so inhibiting that not only are we you know, leaving this talent base in the in the locker room, or also not serving kids who would most benefit from the ability uh, to find a soccer team to join. Mm. Look, let me let me turn the question on its head as well. Then, um, how popular is football in the inner cities? So, do you feel that there, you know, a support a, a sport that I think it's fair to say historically. Uh, in the states has been viewed as a very white middle class sport. Do you think that that is? Do you think that the perception of the of the game is somehow changing within inner cities? Yeah, it's a great question, um, and it's one I think we'll spend time with in the movie. I think from a spectator level, there seems to be a little shift towards it. Um, you know, it, it's not uncommon to see jerseys of kids um you know in the cities uh and i think the premier league has made a great effort by doing sort of these premier league live events i think they've done new york philadelphia and dc this year um they've made a great effort you know to to popularize it as a spectator sport at least um and it's the coverage in america uh 
for Premier League is just amazing. I mean, we get, you know, on Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings, we'll get eight hours or so of coverage, three games and a studio show. And, you know, Rebecca Lowe is obviously very popular here. Um, Kyle Martino is great. So we get this beautifully packaged sport for television. Um, so I think as a spectator sport, it's becoming popular. Um, it's certainly you know, the hipsters in America, you, know, you go to Brooklyn and Portland and things like that. And you see a lot of, of soccer fans um, and more people playing, I think, at the adult level. But for kids in America, it is still absolutely predominantly a white suburban sport. Um, and I think, you know, as, as you and I have talked about, and as we'll see, it'd be interesting to see what really the numbers are with that. And, you know, if it's offered in the cities will that change or do you sort of have to change the perception of it too, to kind of make it soccer cool? Um, which is one of the things DC scores tries to do is like, Hey, look, soccer's fun. Soccer's cool. It's great exercise. It's, you know, it's not as dangerous as football, but, um, I, so anyway, long, long answer to your question. I think it's beginning to change. I think there's a lot of work to do still. Um, I think at a, spectator level the change has happened quicker than at a participant level mm. but uh but it's think, getting there i think do you think that the kind of the the global commercialization of of uh, marketing um has helped and what i kind of mean by that is you know one of the things that i find quite interesting is that you you go to the states and you'll see commercials for nike that have got neymar and odell beckham jr side by side and immediately you kind of go, oh, okay, that's interesting. So that means that, you know, there there has to be an awareness of who Neymar is. Um, and there, there has to, there, those companies must see value in having football players, or sorry, soccer players for, for the US audience, um, in those marketing campaigns. Do you think that that's part of this? I mean, I guess you've kind of touched upon it when you say that you see more jerseys within inner cities. But do you think if we're there, if we're already getting to the stage where kids are kind of going, well, it's cool, like, you know, I want a Neymar jersey. I want to watch Neymar play football. That the next, doesn't it feel logical that the next step with the right infrastructure is that they'll want to kick that ball themselves, do that trick themselves? I mean, I hope you're right. Uh, and I think that's the goal. So, yeah, I think the globalization of soccer has, yeah, it's had an impact on the States. I mean, I think it's obviously very intentional when you see a Neymar, Neymar in a commercial with Odell Beckham Jr. Yeah, exactly. um, and, it, and I think that's sort of one of the, uh, you know, one of the things we've talked about with the movies is that, um, I think this was really came from you is that um, was what the, the Belgian system of making soccer training fun. Yeah. So instead of doing drills, like, Hey, here's some cool tricks you can do to impress women or impress your friends. Um, you know, the other thing is, and it's obviously at an interesting time in America, but we're a nation of immigrants. So, you know, there's a constant stream of, or at least there was, and hopefully there will continue to be, uh, despite the political situation in America, a constant stream of people coming here from other countries where soccer is bigger. So I think when Nike or Adidas, um, you know, do these campaigns and put their football stars next to our football stars, that that's reaching sort of the new Americans as well. Um, but, you know, the World Cup ratings 
were great here last year, even though America wasn't in it. So there are signs of encouragement for sure. And, you know, maybe this is one of those instances where I think people are so quick usually to, you know, kind of oh, corporate America shoves these things down your throats. But maybe this is a good one. You yeah. know, maybe Adidas and Nike kind of pushing football, pushing soccer uh, is good for not just for the sport, but for America um, to kind of take to it because if you're right and if if what we hope happens happens and that these kids who see their heroes kicking a ball and doing tricks then want to do that themselves then that will hopefully spark something you know where soccer grows in the inner cities um because as as we said like it is it's the most democratic sport it's the easiest it's the cheapest in terms of you know if you eliminate the pay-to-play system but in terms of what you literally need to play the game it requires, you know, very little equipment. It doesn't require a nice, you know, level court and net like basketball does. So it's the easiest to to make happen. And um, but I think the the way to get that started is to make it cool, to make it fun. And uh, I don't know. Much as uh, I think you and I are hopefully talented writers, and we're going to hire talented filmmakers to make our film. I'm not sure that our movie will change the world, but hopefully it can get a get a little bit of attention and shine a light on something and, and help continue the conversation at least. Well, I think, I think it'll be interesting to try and put something together. That's a coherent representation of where things actually stand in the inner city, because I think it's one thing to have a conversation about the system and how the system needs to change. But I think it's the, to actually go into inner cities and have conversations with kids and to begin to understand whether or not they want to kick a ball around and why they don't kick a ball around, I think is 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 equally as important. Um, look, is there somewhere that is already a hotbed, somewhere that's a good example? Um, I mean, for example, you touched upon Atlanta earlier, and they've just won the uh, the the MLS as well. So, is that is Atlanta somewhere where that we could look at as an example? of an inner city environment that has embraced soccer uh, to the sport's benefit and the inner city's benefit. Yeah, I think Atlanta is probably the best example right now of that. Um, and it's definitely a place for, where you and I will will spend some time in the next few months because not only did they you know, achieve success at the top level winning the MLS Cup this year, but um, in the cities, it, it has been embraced in larger numbers than in other cities um there's a a league that's built of these mini pitches i think on top of marta station subway stations throughout the city um and it's just thriving really cool culture around it and uh to some extent um i think that's been driven by the fact that the um southern hip-hop community is sort of centered in Atlanta. Yeah. So you have, you know, Waka Flocka Flame and Migos and artists like that who have really taken to soccer um, and sort of helped make it cool there. Um, and it's pretty cool case study um, to see, you know, what happens. And I think it'll be really interesting. Uh, hopefully we'll be given the opportunity to do this, to go back in a few years and see how it develops. But it certainly is a hotbed now. Um DC is is a great city for it, and I think that's in large part because of DC scores and and this the sheer numbers that it produces. Uh, New York has a pretty thriving soccer culture, both at the youth level and and some cool sort of adult leagues that kind of mirror like the famous New York playground basketball leagues. 
Um, so yeah, there there are pockets um, pockets of resistance where soccer where football is means kicking a ball instead of throwing a ball. So uh, Atlanta seems to be leading leading the charge there, but I think we'll we'll probably find other ones as we as we make the film and and even though we're gonna focus on soccer in the city as the title will indicate um and it's not just because you know we like i think the idea of of getting city into anything right we're not calling this soccer <laughs> we're not calling this soccer united so um i think it'll be interesting at some point to explore the um rural areas where there are a lot of immigrant workers too because there are surprisingly uh thriving soccer cultures in interesting rural towns too just because you know these people come to work uh you know to work farm jobs and things like that and they come from south america so that's the game they know um but for this one we'll focus on the cities and i think um you know at this point we know we're gonna film in atlanta and in new york and in washington um we'll probably get out to los angeles but that's uh in part because we hope to speak to some of the agents and some of the other um people out there who are driving the soccer culture yeah um and uh you know if the budget will bear it as we've talked about we'd we'd obviously like to film some overseas too because i think there's a fascination worldwide with why is america so bad at this um i think there's also examples outside of what the u.s can do I think that there's a there's a lot of examples of of countries who have revolutionized their their football setup over a relatively short period of time, um, and I think that's also yeah. Like, I mean, you sorry, go on. That was you, you you told me this story. I think of of was it the Belgian national Absolutely, team that the that it was actually one guy who was who was charged with writing a effectively a thesis on on what was wrong with with belgian football i believe at the end of the 90s the beginning of the 2000s and he wrote quite a damning report on what was wrong but at the root of what he came back with was a a a structured system that allowed kids to have fun with a football and you know something which i find really interesting something which he really focused on which I think it's a complaint that you hear actually hear a lot in the UK in terms of youth development as well. That you know, in Spain at La Masaya, they focus on skills, on you know, beating your man, getting getting the football at your feet, and and learning a, a skill or a trick or a dribble on how to beat the guy in front of you. Um, and in Belgium, they kind of really went down that road of you know, what's fun? What's fun is kids with the ball learning tricks. That's what they love to do. Encourage that. Teach that harness that forget about the idea of you know 11 aside games or five aside games where the only thing matters is the result improve your own personal technique and everything uh, will follow from that and i think that even though it feels you know when people talk about there was a report written they changed their whole structure and it, it feels quite self-important and pompous but when you actually dig into it you're talking about pretty simple common sense things i mean you know, if if from a very young age a kid is encouraged to dribble with the football and, and learn a trick to get past his man, by the time he's 15, 16, those skills will be inherent within him. And when you look at kids who come through the Barcelona Academy or this generation of Belgian players, their technical level is really, really high. And it's, you know, it's got to be in part. It's not just about, like, the best coaches. It's just about giving a kid right. a football and encouraging him to do different things with it. 
So yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's Adidas who's running a commercial now with Claudia Arena's son. Claudia Arena played on the U.S. men's national team for a number of years. His kid is about maybe sixteen or so, and they have him um, do you know dribbling through town and doing tricks um, in various city spots, almost like a parkour thing, uh, but with a ball at his feet. Um, and Adidas has been running that spot a lot, and it. I think that sort of speaks exactly to what you talk about is, hey, look, soccer is cool. You can do these tricks. Uh, you know, I love the video. I, think, I don't know if it's if City TV did it or if it was just sort of an organic thing of uh, of our own Stockport Iniesta of Phil, you know, walking around with the ball at his feet doing tricks. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, what's the hook to get kids to play? Whatever it is. I think in America, at least, we need to be doing it. Like, let's get them to know that soccer's cool. Soccer's yeah. fun. You can do cool things with a much easier point of entry. And, you know, you don't need to look any sort of certain way. I mean, as much as uh, I did not enjoy the Liverpool United game on the weekend, seeing five foot two Shakiri score two goals, you know. I put two, probably 250 pounds or whatever it is. <laughs> it's you know, like, a, it's like can, an MMA fighter or something like that, man. Yeah, right? Like you can have any body type uh, or, you know, five foot four and 115 pound David Silva. Uh, you know, you could have any body type and, and find success with football. Um, and I think that's that's another message it feels like in America that we should be getting across. Because, you know, I mean, basketball players here are – you know, you have point guards now who are, are six foot eight, um, and football players are. You know, you have running backs who are two fifty. So, uh, soccer is not only democratic in that it doesn't cost a lot to play, it doesn't require a lot to play, but it really is. You can look any sort of certain way and be able to do it and do it well. Look, and I think it's a way. I mean, we've discussed this before, but the reality is when you look at Rock Nation, Jay Z's company taking on Lukaku as a you know, as a client, as, as, as their uh, being, being his representative, you see that there's a, you know, the, the commercial side of football is, is already seeping into the States in a really, really, really big way. Um, and it won't be long. I don't think anyway, before those same people will begin to look at the inner cities and go, we're not even giving these kids a chance to see if they're good enough to be able to be developed and have this be another route into college or into a better life. Um, yeah, the- yeah that's, that's a great point because still the biggest stars here uh, are not from here. And even, I mean, we saw it here in DC, you know, when United signed, DC United signed Wayne Rooney, uh, you know, everybody knew it would be successful, at least at some level, in, in selling jerseys and getting people onto, out to the stadium. But to see the impact he had on the pitch was really impressive. Um, and you know, sort of the same thing, I guess, with Ibrahimovic uh, in Los Angeles. But um, you and I have talked about this, and I think this will be something that will be fascinating to find in our movie. But like, all right, what if, you know, the next – what if there's an American Messi out there? Like, will that be what it takes to make the sport break through? Because right now – the biggest stars in the world, even the ones who play here, are not from here. So, you know, Rock Nation represents Lukaku. Wouldn't it be cool if they, you know, found a 16-year-old kid? And obviously everyone points to Christian Pasilic. And, you know, there's been sort of 
you know, almost or or just kind of one step below megastars that have come from America, but we still haven't placed that one transcendent figure uh, on the world stage. Um, and you know, hopefully uh, during the course of this film, if we're if we're lucky enough to uh, have a budget that allows it, we'll get a chance to talk to the Rock Nation people. We'll get a chance to come over, you know, to come over there maybe and t- and talk to City's Academy um, about how they're scouting talent at a young age and nurturing it uh, without this pay to play wall um, and taking kids who have this preternatural talent, um, nurturing that talent and creating homegrown stars. Because that is, I think one thing that uh, for the most part, you know, we've really lacked here is we've had good players. We've had, you know, borderline great players, um, but we haven't been able either to find that one transcendent figure or to string together enough of the good to great players to make, the men's national team have a really deep run where people feel like it could happen and it could win. Mm, I think, I mean, in terms of the kind of the idea of, of finding a U.S. Messi, do you think that, do you think that part of the issue, and I, excuse the bluntness of my question, um, I don't really know how to ask this politely, uh, but then you listen to this to my podcast, so you know that sometimes <laughs> I'll, ask, I'll ask things in a very blunt way. Um, is there a, is there a racist element to the kind of, the, is the structure of U.S. soccer either consciously or subconsciously racist? And the reason that I ask that question is because the, I mean, if you look at the, if you look at the U.S. men's national team, it's it's an overwhelmingly white team. If you look at right. so, the perception of soccer or football in the states, it's perceived as a very white sport. If you look at the structure of it to play it, it sounds like you need some considerable resources it sounds like if i'm you know a poor kid who's in brooklyn or somewhere like that i'm probably looking at at, even if i love the sport and i'm watching messi on the tv and i've got a ball that i kick around on the streets there's no way for me to translate that into what the equivalent would be with basketball or with american football right now is that that is that a fair kind of thing that i'm saying yeah, I mean, well, so first of all, I think part of the reason I wanted to work on this film with you is because of that bluntness. I think to be a good uh, documentarian, you need to ask the hard questions. And uh, I, I always liked it uh, um, as a fan of the 9320 uh, that you do, you would ask them, not just of, you know, of guests, but even of your fellow hosts, you know, you're going to take the hard stance and take a stand. So I like it. And I think you'll uh, to speak to our relationship with this film, I think you'll be good at pushing me out of my comfort zone to ask the hard questions too. So I appreciate it. Um, the answer to your question is, I don't know, but it certainly feels like there's something there, right? I mm. mean, and I don't know if, if the racism, if that's what it is, is a cause or a symptom. Uh, so, you know, it's a little bit chicken or an egg, right? I mean, it's an all white sport and it's sort of this cycle maybe that, you have to break. So, you know, as much as it's great if Christian Pasilic is, is the next great American star, but okay, what if, you know, what if it was an African-American kid? Would that change perceptions? I don't know. Um, you know, I'd hate to I think, think it that would. it's true. But I think- I, yeah, I mean, I hate to think that it's true, but I think you're right. I mean, a lot of times we are still a very xenophobic, racist nation. Um, and, you know, and, and pick your ist. I mean, there's misogyny <laughs> and sexism and, and obviously again, you look no, 
look no more distant in the past than the past election to see an example of this sort of hidden racism that still infects America. Um, and so, yeah, I think there, my guess is that you're correct. I wish that wasn't the case. I hope that won't always be the case. And I think it won't always be the case. Uh, you know, I think a lot of times in, I don't know, in world history and certainly in American histories, you sort of have to hit this, you know, bottoming out before things can bounce back. So, you know, to maybe there's a parallel between the fortunes of the men's national team bottoming out when we didn't qualify for the World Cup. And, you know, I don't remember who we lost, if it was Trinidad and Tobago or something like that in the game where we officially didn't qualify uh, at a very similar time to where the nation sort of bottomed out in letting its ugliest side step forward, you know, in electing Trump. So um, I think there's an interesting parallel there. I think there probably is some endemic racism in the system. Um, I think there are very good people, um, you know, working to change that organizations like scores and soccer for all, um, you know, and uh, is an organization that DC score sponsors called the open goal project, which gives scholarships to inner city kids to be able to, afford um or to be able to participate in pay to play leagues. So I think there's good people, you know, much like in politics or anything else, working to erase sort of the sins of the past. I think that's that's happening in football as well. And I I think uh it's important, you know, for the game, for the kids who would benefit from having access to it and uh you know and certainly for uh for America's standing on the international stage as we're hosting a world cup in about seven and a half years now. Well, that's kind of the root of, of one of the points of the film is that actually seven and a half, eight years is a really long time in football. You know, if you go back, if you, if you look at this summer's world cup and then you go back eight, nine years and look at the French world cup winning team and, and look at where some of them were eight, nine years ago. I mean, it kind of shows that, between now and when the next world cup comes around, if something is done, if something is done right now in the next 12 months, that is, it's entirely possible that come that world cup, the U S men's national team will have a, a slightly different makeup than, than it currently does. And also just like, you know, I mean, and this again goes back to the very, one of the very first conversations that we had for me, it's just really mind blowing that you have huge swathes of the population you make it really difficult for them to play the sport and then you complain that you're not very good at it it's like well you know maybe give everybody a chance to play it equally and then pick the best talent from that pool from the bigger pool rather than deciding that this corner of rich people people over here can play the sport and then picking from that pool and going yeah but why are we not very good well you know you're yeah no no i think you're right and i and i hope I, I hope that uh, well, I think I mean, it's too much to hope that people are going to listen to you, you and I, or watch our film and change their mind. But I think that's happening anyway, and hopefully our film finds an audience and helps more people feel that way. But I think there, are, you know, like I said there are smart people working towards that. There are corporations who see the financial benefit in that happening, and there are organizations that see the sociological benefit of that happening. So, um, you know, the, the world's better when there's good competition and you watch America, you know, do, does so well and things like the Olympics and, um, you know, on most world stages athletically and to not do well with the world's most popular sport 
it should bother us as a country. Uh, we should care more about it. We are a nation of immigrants. You know, we are a nation built of people who grow up playing this. Um, and yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's seven to eight years till the next World Cup. So we have a chance to really uh, reshape our attitude towards it and the makeup of the team. But it has to start with nurturing young talent. You know, you're not going to get Absolutely. these 18-year-old kids who have been in sort of these cushy pay-to-play leagues. Not that they're all cushy. There's tough ones. And there's ones that are really, you know, that are nurturing talent. And there are academies within clubs. You know, DC United has a great academy. Um, but, you know, we need to do better as a nation. We need to make it more accessible to all. Yep. Um for you know, for the good of the country, for the good of the kids, and for the good of of the sport. Well, I hope that um, after our film is out, we can affect some change. Um, listen, just to wrap up, for those people listening in the states, and I know that when I talked about it on Twitter, I had uh, uh, a big reaction from people. There is, there is, there are people who care about the sport in the states. For people who may want to get involved in the film, give their opinions, talk to us. Uh, how do they do that and and what kind of participation are you looking for i think at this point uh we would like and correct me if you disagree i think we'd like to hear from anybody who has an opinion a thought somebody we should talk to somebody who says hey i live in you know i live in portland and there's this 10 year old kid at a school here that everyone's talking about uh you know one of the things that i think we would really really love to discover because i I think it's important for us uh, and for the film to be interesting is that this isn't going to be just a bunch of talking heads right i mean we want characters in this film um and we have some great ones right exactly it's a character driven it's going to be you know we talk about this later but you know we, we sort of envision this as a gritty urban narrative film with you know, with a cool soundtrack and we've talked about some you know hip-hop artists contributing to it and we i think we don't want to reveal all our cards but we know we have some aces in the hole already with uh some artists who will be contributing music to it and the aesthetic is going to be you know not necessarily hoop dreams but not not hoop dreams either yeah. um so i think if people have uh you know ideas for us to pursue they want to talk to us about their opinions. They want to suggest people we go check out. Uh, I would be perfectly happy to speak to anybody. Uh, they can get me on Twitter. Uh, I think it's at Houdat, uh, W-H-O-D-A-T-M-D-H, um, which is uh, to your non-American listeners, a reference to New Orleans. Um, and, uh, you can also email me. Um, I'm probably opening up Pandora's box here, but go ahead and email me if you'd like to at Michael at the content farm TV. Um, and I'm happy to have a conversation with anybody about this. And yeah, we want stories, you know, we want people who want to sponsor the film. We're certainly uh, open to more funding for it and more opportunities to, uh, tell the important stories, to hear the important stories and to, be able to be in a position to share this film uh, with as many people as possible. And I think, you know, you're a phenomenal writer and I'm really excited to be working with you on it. And you bring a, a really cool narrative style to it and ability to develop characters and tell a story that I think I don't have as a producer of unscripted television for the most part. Um, I did not then, pay you, you know, to say any of that. Just to be clear, didn't. I didn't pay That's Michael true. to say any of that. 
no, we're, we're paying you to do it. So, um, but, uh, you know, I think we're going to be able to tell this amazing story and we, and, you know, luckily also between uh, you and I and some of our contacts, we have access to some really smart, talented people, but also I think, uh, to some cool people, to some people who could be sort of tastemakers and help promote it. And, and if we can put together like the soundtrack, like I said, for this, that we want to, and this kind of cool aesthetic, like, you know, this is not going to be a boring, rote, talking head, pedantic documentary. This is going to be a film that people are going to want to see. They're going to learn about characters. You know, some who come from DC scores, we have coaches, Coach Popsy, who people will meet in this film is just an unbelievable human who's done so much for the game. And we're going to introduce people to characters like that, but also, you know, back to your point, we need to find the other ones. We need to find the scouts who are looking for that American messy or, or maybe the parents who are pushing their kid to be that person. So, I want to find yeah. them. Like, I think we should like, that's my mission during the research is to go out and actually scout a kid from the inner city that nobody has seen play that you can then take to an Academy and go see like this kid was just kicking a ball around the streets of Chicago or Cincinnati right. or wherever. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put all of Michael's contact details uh, on our Twitter uh, when we drop the podcast and also obviously all of my details so you guys can get in touch. I think we really would just love to hear from from people in the States, anybody who, who feels strongly about soccer in the inner city, anybody who knows about anybody who's doing things in inner cities to bring the sport more um, not more notoriety or just getting people more engaged. We want to hear from them all. Um, Michael, uh, thank you very much to wrap this up very quickly. Um, now, when this podcast is released, the game will already have been played. So this is completely irrelevant. However, we played <laughs> Leicester City tonight in right. the Carabao Cup, and it would be rude for me to not ask for a team prediction and then a score prediction. So firstly, oh boy. what team do you think Pep's putting out tonight to play Leicester? Uh, I think we'll probably see a pretty heavily rotated team. So let's see. In the back, I would guess that we're going with uh, Vinny and Odomende in the middle yeah. uh, with probably Zinchenko and maybe Danilo on the sides. Um, I think Gundo gets a start. I think Phil gets a start. Um, Gosh, who's not injured right now? Uh, Pep says KDB have to starts. Play. Pe- Pep yeah, says KDB right, starts. Right. right, KDB could benefit from a full game. Uh, Gabby will probably start up front, and I would imagine Mares. Um, so who am I missing? Maybe one? Yeah, just one. So we have Eli, four in the back. Uh, or uh, Raz or right. Bernardo. I, uh, I think it, let's go with Leroy, Mares. And Jesus up top. So and uh, so, I think that's my team. What do you think? The only let me think. The only change in that. I mean, I I would go with that exact team. I think that that will more or less be the team. Danilo Zinchenko, maybe maybe not Vinny and Otamendi. Maybe only one of those two, and then one of Stones or Laporte. I think the midfield. Yeah, you're right. Gundo, Foden, KDB. Um, I'd like to see Jesus being given another start, but I've got a feeling that Aguero, just for rhythm, because he's been out for a few weeks, might end up starting. Mares, I agree, will start again. 
I wonder whether he, because of the form that Leroy's in, I wonder whether he takes the opportunity to give Sterling another rest and just let's start again and kind of, you know, Sterling played at the World Cup. He's played almost every game up until the weekend. It's kind of so important to, to what Pep does that if the opportunity does present itself to give him a rest of a week or two, then maybe that's the case. But, you know, I think the one thing when we talk about players getting a rest is we don't know which players prefer rest and which players prefer rhythm, if that makes sense. Because I right, imagine some right. of them don't want to be taken out of the side because they're playing well. So it's like, well, I'm not tired. I'm playing well. Don't take me out. So Yeah, um, Leroy, uh, Leroy certainly seems to benefit by the more run he gets. He seems to get momentum behind him. And I really enjoyed as much as uh, I, I don't like the injuries and it's amazing to have KDB back. I think Gundo has really benefited in form by the amount of minutes he's gotten recently, which I'm happy to see because I've always liked him as a player and he seems like a great person. So it's been good to see him sort of finally reach uh, what we thought he could be. And I think as you and I have talked about offline to actually maybe be that number six that can spell Ferna, especially if Pep's serious about not going into the January transfer window. So yeah, I'm excited to see what team we put out today. I think it'll be interesting. Uh, And I don't know. You want a score prediction? Uh, Just for fun. I think uh, 3-1 City. Excellent. Excellent. Right. Michael Holstein, thank you very much for employing me, giving me a proper job for (laughs) for 2019 and for coming on this podcast. It is my pleasure. Thank you for all the great entertainment uh, for the time I've been listening and for becoming a great friend and partner throughout this process. And uh, I'm I'm very excited to to be doing this with you. I think we're going to do something something really exciting here. Beautiful. And to everybody who listened, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this very special 9320 podcast. Like I said, get in touch if you want to get involved in the film, if you've got an opinion, if you want to say something, if you want to tell us that we're nuts for making the film. Send us an email, send us a tweet. Um, And yes, we'll be back very soon with a more Manchester City-focused podcast. In the meantime, be safe, be well, and up the blues.